Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined from sunny California by Andrew Watkins, who is the VP of Engineering at BuildOps. Andrew Watkins, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. So as you reflect on your time in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Some good characteristics of well-maintained software uh, would be encapsulation, being able to test your code, be able to decompose your code uh, such that it can be modularized um, and, you know, as aforementioned, easily testable. Um, they kind of go hand in hand. Being able to like wrap your code around a particular domain and keep it as much as possible single use, um, single uh, area of responsibility. You know, I, I've had a number of people on the show talk about uh, like single area of responsibility. Could you, for those that might not be that familiar with it, can you kind of give like a high level overview of what what that what you mean by that? Yeah. So. Say you have a particular method or module or whatnot, um, making sure that it is programmed and architected such that it only does one singular function and only that. It doesn't try to do too much. That's kind of a broad stroke. It's a little bit high level, but imagine a, a method that's um, adding, you know, it's an addition function, right? Well, that's all it does is it adds. It doesn't try to add plus multiply. It doesn't try to add and subtract. It just adds, <laughs> That's what you kind of want. When you get into real-world problems, um, oftentimes as um, you know, you work with your product team or you know, you're programming it for yourself, you're like, oh, I'm going to have this method that's going to call this API, pull back some information, and then I'm going to process it, right? And as part of that processing, I might try to do too much. I might try to do that addition, do some subtraction, do some computation that is outside the bounds of really maybe just calling that API and returning some result in a transform state. Kind of expanding on that, let's say you call something that's supposed to give you like a total price. I'm trying to think of like a dig into that. Like, so if you have adding and subtracting, and you're like, okay, what's the price for this? Or maybe it's the total price for, let's say, an invoice or something. Are you advocating that you should be able to call one thing and then that goes off and calls multiple things itself, or that you're actually calling all the individual steps initially? Not calling all the individual steps initially, but it's decomposed such that you can call, so say you're pulling something that's getting a price. And then particularly you're taking that, um, you know, that price and that invoice um, and then applying it to, you know, or applying a receipt along alongside it, you know, against that particular invoice, right? You know, um, what you probably want to do is instead of combining both of those into one operation um, and then delivering the result, you might want to, you know, call the invoice, get that particular uh, total amount separately, call the receipt, get that total amount, and then have another method that then actually does the computation of figuring out the, you know, your computation after the fact. So each of those can be tested individually. You know, it's a little bit more work. You could combine them all into one, but then if one particular piece of that fails, the whole operation fails. Whereas like maybe I've done this in the past, um, especially with like ETL pipelines, like you might want to be able to, um, if you get the invoice, cool, you can store that. If it fails on getting the receipt, that's bad, but you can still recover and you don't have to call the invoice again. You can just call that receipt and retry against that and then be able to pull a result. Um, just makes it more scalable, more testable, especially when you start chaining operations together. Um, in, in this particular example, say you had you know, five invoices you're doing. Uh, if you're pulling all the invoices at once, 
and one of them fails, then the whole operation, you know, is kind of blown up. So, and you, you know, you said like easily testable. Can you, can you, can you kind of help ex- explain that a little bit as well? Like, I think I've, I've had a number of people talk about that as well, and and I speak with engineers that are struggling to really know what that means sometimes, and they're like, well, like what types of tests or like are, are there some paradigms that testing to someone that's never done a lot of testing themselves seems hard in the first place to them. And so I think there's that kind of that next step of like, okay, once you're kind of familiar with writing certain types of tests, we talk about writing code in a way that makes it easy to test or, or how testable will this be? How do you kind of start that process of thinking through that, pro- that model? Uh, fantastic. Yeah. And actually here's another real world scenario um, that we ran into and it's going back to this invoicing um, example. So as part of one of our processes that we recently integrated, we integrated with um, third-party accounting software um, like QuickBooks and Sage and Intact. And we utilize a third party to, to do this, but um, a fair amount of it's just API driven. We have a queue. When an invoice is updated, when we receive receipts, when we receive payments, an item goes onto the queue that is then going to trigger the integration into the third-party software like QuickBooks or whatnot. And so we have you know, some code that picks it up off the queue, does various transformations, pulls in more data, and then posts it out and you know, deals with error requests, right? So going back to testability, when it was originally written, the developer kind of thought of this as like, okay, I'm going to pick it off the queue, do all these transformations, post, receive responses, post back, right? And I was like, that's great. Fantastic. He wrote beautiful code. However, I'm like, okay, now me, the second developer that's coming in, how do I run this? How do I test this? How do, how do I do it? How do I run through this process? And he's like, well, cool. You have to put an item on the queue and you have to also have the ability to, as part of the enrichment process of my code, you have to have um, the ability to call like our database, certain APIs and have the whole infrastructure set up to be able to test my code. You know? And I'm like, that's awesome. I don't want to do that, right? <laughs> and so that's where I started going into, um, like, look, we should probably start decomposing particular parts of this code such that either we can mock it, you know, whether it's a third-party API, or I can stub it out, say, the uh, inputs that are coming from the queue so that I can easily identify problems within each part of the code without having to go and set up the whole entire chain to make a change to this particular type of code. And so I use that as a, a, a kind of a model I want to explain, like, how granular do you get to to test? Like, as you build your functionality, if you think about testing at the upfront, you might say, okay, I know I'm going to be getting these payloads from the queue. So why don't I just, instead of, you know, having a queue there, take those payloads and just dump them into my test directory, you know, because they're just JSON, basically. We're using SQS. And Lambda's on 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 the tail end of that, so it's just picking up as a handler. Cool. I can use that to test that, and then it's going to have certain outputs. Then I can just take those outputs and say, okay, I'm going to put that to my transformation logic. And those methods that do that are going to take those early inputs and they're going to dump them to an API. And then I can just mock the API's request and response and then have well-tested code that, you know, it's not testing, you know, 100% test coverage and like the very granular unit test, but it's testing the overall functionality. And it's very easy to follow. If I need to make a change to that transformation logic, I don't need the SQS. I just have the output of whatever was picking up off the SQS to be able to do it. I've, uh, for my development team, I've tried to use that as a, as, a, as a best practices for like, look, you don't need to test everything, but test what you're trying to actually build. You know, you don't have to do it beforehand. I, I actually don't do like 
complete test-driven development where I write my tests first. But as I'm building, I'm like, okay, how am I going to test this? How am I going to provide the inputs and uh, provide the outputs such that um, I can have someone else run right behind me and be able to easily pick it up? Do you use the uh, terminology technical data often in your day-to-day work? All the time. We are in a very good state now. But previously, our, our system was very reliant on our infrastructure. Namely, we're an AWS shop. And we used a fair amount of AWS utilities that were only available within the cloud. We, their local development was extremely difficult when I first arrived. Um, and since then, we've actually backed out of that um, and removed a lot of that functionality. And I would classify that easily as technical debt. Um, in making a better developer experience, we've been gradually um, chipping away at either removing those components that were tightly coupled to AWS and making it such that, hey, we can develop locally, we can deploy locally, um, and also we can easily deploy it through our CD right back to AWS. In doing so, our coding standards against what we had built, uh, again, tightly coupled us to like certain components of AWS that they offered. And so we've had to remove those. Um, a particular example about that would be we, we, we use Lambdas, you know, much like a lot of the modern world. However, our lambdas were very, very tightly coupled uh, to something called AppSync, uh, which is like a managed GraphQL service. And uh, they had domain knowledge against AppSync, which, again, kind of breaks <laughs> the paradigm. You know, the lambda should just be encapsulated to do whatever it needs to do. It shouldn't worry about what's delivering it or what it needs to call back into. And so with that, those types of examples of technical debt, your team's trying to improve their day-to-day development experience and workflow are you finding that there's this allure with a lot of these cloud-based tools to go down these paths to integrate because they'll they'll save you time and get things up and running quicker do you feel like they tend to like it's more of a scenario where i don't know if you were around when the decision to use those technologies were initially or not but what's the take on like did those give you some certain types of trade-offs early on that you later be like okay now this is becoming more of a challenge, but it worked. It served its purpose for then, but it's not going to serve our purpose going forward. Or do you feel like it was sometimes maybe the wrong, dis- maybe the wrong decision in the first place? How do you distinguish that? Yeah. So in this particular case, it was definitely the allure of new technology, and I wasn't around for that to be honest. That kind of that kind of drove the decision. For me, I'm much more pragmatic. One culture that I've tried to build within BuildOps is more of a, a DevOps-based culture. It's like, cool, we can code. You know, we're the best coders in the world, um, just like everyone else. However, how do you actually deploy your code? How does your code make its way through our different environments and get into production? How easy is it to build up a new environment to be able to support your code? Uh, some of the decisions that were made earlier on that didn't really take that into account. They were just like, oh, shiny new object, let's go use it. We'll, we'll figure it out. And so we'll make decisions on our code based on that object. Whereas for me, it's more kind of the reverse where it's like, okay, I have my wonderful code. Now I got to think about how is it going to move out into production? And for me, that is way more interesting and also like a good problem to solve, but also also lead to very, some very good best practices about making sure that you're decoupled from your actual environment, but then making sure that the environment is part of your consideration for when you are building your application. So. So now we just use plain Docker on ECS containers with like Fargate, which itself is relatively you know newish, but works really well. So, do your developers work in a like on their local machines and able to perform most of the type of work that you would be able to run in production as well? Or is there still quite a 
big difference between those environments of like, well, they can work on certain pieces of it, but they can't really do like an end to end full experience in a, a local capacity. How, how does that kind of approach? I say that as someone coming from like the Ruby on Rails world where it's like you spin up everything locally and you eventually figure out how to push it out. And there's, I feel like it's always been really good at the local environment side of things, but I've always been curious how that works in other technology stacks. Oh, I can go into depth on this. So uh, we're almost at the 80-20 rule on this. So the developers can do about 80% of their development now locally, which when I first came on was 0%. So I feel very, very good about that. Where um, it starts to fall down is that coupling between some of our lambdas and some of the other lambdas that we have, we have kind of a, a chaining of lambdas that talk to each other. And so you can get so far uh, with being able to run those locally but then after a couple hops, then it starts to fall down. It becomes a lot harder. So that last 20% um, becomes very um, disadvantageous. So uh, for the most part, it, it still kind of works, you know. But if you do have to develop in those, like, those tail-end lambdas, then you actually have to go into our dev environment. And we have a process for, as we just use process on top of you know, our development practice um, to say, hey, team, I'm taking over the development <laughs> In our development of those lambdas, you might see some peculiarities and making some changes. You know, I've tested those because lambda again just takes some inputs and does some, you know, spits out some output. So be aware. But yes, uh, I also, you know, come from the Ruby on Rails world where you run everything locally. You know, and there are cases where you can run lambdas locally, especially with the serverless framework. Um, they have offline mode. But the way we coupled our lambdas together kind of stopped that from being able, a useful pattern, um, which was, you know, unfortunate. So like that was like a, I think some good examples of types of technical debt that your team has needed to kind of like work through over time. And how do you for other things that pop up where that are like maybe a lower priority at the seemingly at the moment? How do you how do you and your team go about organizing that work, prioritizing it, and deciding when or or if it'll ever get tackled? Like what's that process look like? Every every week uh, I, I hold a meeting where I bring a fair amount of the developers in. Um, and we kind of discuss architecture and coding and whatnot. And I really want to know, and we run on a normal two-week sprint cycle. So having this meeting every week should capture a lot of the information that's um, that's going out for what we're developing, you know, both for the current sprint and the next sprint. And I make it a point to bring up, like, hey, what are we developing? I want to know about it. I want documentation on Confluence of what architectural decisions are we making, whether it's small, like a you know database change for whether it's large, like we're introducing a queue and Kafka and whatever else, you know, that might be impacting our system. And during that meeting, I expect people to raise their voice and saying, hey, I am programming it like this, given this particular trade-off. Like I have, you know, the end of the sprint's coming, we need to release this to production, you know, right afterwards. I'm not going to have time in a hypothetical example to add security to my API endpoint, right? And I'll be like, okay, Thank you for letting me know. That's either not good. You're gonna, I will go to the business and say, we cannot release this on Monday because we don't have security and we can't, if, you know, if we are hacked, that is, you know, it's the end of the business. So I, I will fight that fight versus, you know, hey, it's something lower. The queue that we're using, it's, you know, a FIFO queue. We don't need that. It needs to just be a standard queue or, or whatnot, but we can switch it off and change it at a later time. And so then I'll, you know, I'll make a judgment. Or ask, you know, if I don't have enough knowledge or somebody does, be like, look, what do, what do we think we should do on this particular case? Um, so then we document it and put it onto Confluence and then create an ordered list um, that we keep track of. And 
Um, I don't like to throw it into Jira because I feel, you know, it gets lost there, um, to be honest. Um, and so I have a, a page of like effectively like high level tech deck and then another page that's more like low level, uh, low level tech deck, like things that we need to address. We can just skim through it and be like, okay, is this important? Are we getting rid of it? Um, do we have a better way? And then, you know, we'll eventually take a look at it. We've been really busy over the past several months um, in terms of like features and functionality bringing clients on board during the summer. We're looking to have a little bit of um, downtime. So that's why I plan to start, you know, addressing some of these lower level things that, you know, are annoyances more than anything else. So I know, you know, talking to a couple of people around how they try to plan for whether what they call slack time or lots of different things where just more of like a we're going to have a period of time to come back in, kind of take care of a bunch of this at the same time, which would be great. Um, get as much done as we can and get tidy up before we, you know, start moving on to the next sprint. You know, it's like sprint, sprint, sprint. But when do you like stop to catch your breath for a little bit, you know? So I know that there's like systems out there where there's been decisions made by the team or stakeholders or a manager somewhere to say, okay, that doesn't seem like important enough for us to deal with. Like maybe right now, kind of like it's kind of air quoting that a little bit. It's like not bad enough or painful enough to deal with. But as you bring new people in, you know, they might bring that back up again. And be like, hey, hadn't we done that? How do you how do you go about capturing those types of decisions and referring back to that information, or so that someone was, do do you expect people to like know that, or just have like kind of like a well, we already decided that like two years ago, we're not dealing with that. Do you is that ever persisted in a way that you found in like in a manager role where you find yourself being like, well, you might have said no then, but it doesn't mean no forever, and then but then the developers kind of translate that, oh, that's just never going to get taken care of, and so they stop asking about it. Yeah, so um, I do keep that Confluence document. So when they come in, they can, you can reference it. We're like, oh, yep, we thought about that. You know, that's when we did because has a date on it. You know, and if the developer feels, hey, I actually do feel this is more important for X, Y reason, you know, they can talk to me or you know during that meeting um, that I have, you know, they can bring it up and be like, look, I really do think this is important. And I'm more than if if they say okay, I'm like okay, um, let's work with the business to figure out during our sprint that it will. Well, first we got to estimate it, you know, and that's very important for me because <laughs> nothing worse than going down a rabbit hole. But you know, we can figure out like, hey, time box this to let's say three days or whatever you need, but it has to be time boxed. Let the business know or me, you know, your squad leader, such that it can be put into the sprint. You have my backing that this is important and it needs to be done as part of the sprint as opposed to some other, you know, feature. And I'll make that determination and against our priorities since I'm aware of them and go ahead, you know, <laughs> have at it. But remember that time box, uh, because what I don't want is let's take, you know, our build times are too long. You can probably shave like a good three minutes off of that. And then depending on how OCD you are, you might be able to get down to two minutes, but that extra, two, you know, that extra time, you know, might take an extra week. And it's like, the justification for that, I, I won't be able to. I, I won't be able to, you know, to explain to the business, but I will be able to explain a certain amount of time, you know, and what it, what it'll say. We'll be back with our interview with Andrew in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment just to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, do you know someone in the industry that she's speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our interview with Andrew Watkins. 
In an ideal world, how often do you believe your team should be focused on, say, improving existing code versus producing new code? Ha. So I have a firm rule on this. You see broken code and you're touching broken code, fix broken code. Now, you have to be pragmatic about this and let me know or your squad leader know. If you see it and you're like, look, by pulling on this thread, it's going to unravel a lot and I'm going to have to rewrite it and, you know, the dreaded rewrite, you know, and it's going to take four months. I'm going to say no, <laughs> but I want to be aware of it so I can put on my little board and then we can think about addressing it at some, you know, time in the future. However, if you see something, it's like, yep, that code's bad. I'm going to need some extra story points, you know, maybe another day, you know, as I'm doing this feature to just refactor that, put some tests around it and we'll be good. I will totally support that and will absolutely have your backing if anyone talks to me uh, because we want to clean up our code base. We want to make it better um, for the next person. And if we just keep shoving up under the rug, that's never going to happen. Um, and it's every developer's responsibility to identify and then be able to do that. Because what I found in my experience is when you let something fester like that for too long, that code inevitably comes back to haunt you at the worst possible time. You know, and you're like, yep, I saw that. I should have fixed it. And now our integrations are like broken and we are going to now have to spend that four months to fix them, you know? <laughs> so I'm curious also, you know, sounds like you're, because you've mentioned working in sprints, does your team, does your team broken up in a way that like if things get shipped, bug fixes that might be popping up, are those part of the sprint or though you have like a team that's kind of being more in a more reactive state type of work that they're in? And how do you approach that? Is there like a rotation to that or is everybody kind of involved in producing new features, updates, things that are getting shipped in the sprints versus uh, just reacting to the day-to-day -day things that pop up? Um, cool. So currently, because we're an early stage startup and my team is relatively small, we're about uh, 22 engineers right now. And we're broken out into different squads as we call them P0s, which isn't totally true. As items come up that you know require hot fixes, required by the business to be taken care of, like in 24 to you know, 48 hour time frame, we look at the area of the domain that it's um, focused on, and then apply that to that particular squad, who will then you know triage and take care of it. And then I'll help out as well as needed. You know, if I know the you know the squad is slammed, or I'll find another resource if absolutely necessary. But I don't like to do that. That is what we do now. Eventually, I want to move to a model, um, it'll be a progression, where there'll be somebody who will be on technical debt for that particular sprint, as well as those bug fixes, you know, that'll be coming up for that particular squad. And that'll be a rotating thing um, from uh, sprint to sprint. And then as we grow larger, you know, knock on wood, then we will get to, you know, your traditional enterprise like L1, L2, L3 support. So we already have, and the nice thing is, even for a fair amount of our integrations, we I'm very much documentation-based, so we put together runbooks, basically for me and other developers. So if one developer has been working on integrations and our syncing is failing, they say, hey, document why it's failing, make a judgment call on whether you're ever going to see this again or whether it's a common use case scenario, um, put it onto Confluence such that if you're not around, someone else on your team can pick it up or I can pick it up so that we have coverage. You know, you were talking, mentioned uh, run books there, and um, had a few different guests mention those. And I'm curious, can you like, uh, how detailed do you get in in your typical run books? Is there like, is it do you do it for like this type of specific problem? This is the way you kind of go about debugging it. It's get pretty granular. Do you use 
screenshots, videos at all, or any sort of narration? Like, what other? How do you go about doing that to make it easy and quick to to for the person that's going to be hopefully leaning on that that documentation or material to quickly digest it? I suppose. Yeah. So we, I prefer just text based approach. Uh, some of the other developers actually prefer putting on videos, and so they do. That's on them. I never watch them. I, I, no matter what, I want them to put together text and the steps um, necessary to both reproduce and to be able to troubleshoot. And I ask them to go as granular as possible. Now, having said that, we've actually given it to our customer experience team. These are the um, people who are not technical. Well, there's, I take that back. They are somewhat technical, uh, but they're not programmers. And they work hand-in-hand with our clients. And they've been able to pick up what our programmers are putting down and actually run with it, you know, especially for some of our adapters that are sitting on client machines. They'll be like, okay, I understand this sync is not happening. Let's look at these particular logs. Oh, I'm seeing this. Okay, I know what to do in our software. Even being able to log into AWS and potentially reset a queue to allow other entries to then start flowing through maybe after resetting something on the device. I was actually pretty impressed. So, I think that's an often overlooked benefit of documentation and making it simple enough. And then do you go through, like once someone produces the run book, like have someone go through and test that they can kind of go through it right away? Or is, you just, is that something you just find out the next time that pops up and you're like, to see how, how comprehensive it is? I don't do like pull requests on top of it after it's been written, but I do tell uh, other developers, and this has actually worked pretty well, if you don't, and this has also worked actually extremely well for onboarding as well. If you find something lacking in the runbook or any, in any onboarding material, it's up to you to add it <laughs> So for the next person. And it's fine to be more, uh, don't delete stuff, but you know, just add to it. So, so outside of like, say writing clean code and, good documentation and tests. Are there other characteristics that you're asking your team to strive for and to think about as they're approaching their day-to-day work? One thing is thinking about how to modulize our code, right? In the rush to you know deliver new features and functionality, sometimes it's very easy to slip into habits where it's like, okay, I'm just going to write this method and it's, you know, it'll work. It'll do what it's supposed to. But then really taking an onus on saying, okay, going back to that addition method, which is really kind of silly. Um, but I'm writing this addition method. Maybe I can reuse this in other different areas of the code and putting it into um, you know, utilities folder or whatnot, and then heavily documenting it. And then when you're going through other uh, developers' pull requests, making sure that you let them know about this, that it is there, that they should be able to use. Um, and then a lot of it is actually good code hygiene. I have a very strong you know, preference. I wouldn't say it's a rule on this, but... Um, Depending on your language, you know, try to keep your methods under, you know, 20 lines of code. If, you know, 10 ideally. If you're going over, you're probably doing it wrong, you know. Look out for that with other developers as well. And that kind of forces a habit of encapsulation because then it actually thinks about like, okay, why do I have this 100-line method? What is it doing so much that it needs to have that much, you know? Being able to think about um, the overarching picture of what we're building. Um, I feel that's really important. Um, so I'm a very big advocate of domain-driven design. And one of the tenets of that is coming up with a ubiquitous language uh, to speak, you know, when you talk to a product person, when you talk to our implementation team, um, when you talk to other developers. Um, and that's just saying, like, hey, we're calling this SnapFu widget, SnapFu widget, and we need to come to a common language around what a SnapFu widget is 
so that we don't have miscommunication between product customers development, you know, be mindful of that because that's going to end up making you a subject matter expert on our product, but also within the code as well. So I like that. And, you know, it's interesting. We're talking around, you know, just a play it like to this, this idea that sometimes when you, you're working on something for a very specific feature and you're like, well, and you're, you're just, you just mentioned also trying to think about how you could modularize this, maybe it could be reused. And so do you think it's in that, when that happens, do you think things can tend to then deviate a little bit from the domain language, the ubiquitous language they're using about that specific feature thing? Because like, well, this is actually, we could create this kind of more generic reusable thing that this time is just happens to be this and so you end up with these kind of funny, weird names that only the developers understand that currently only have the use case of being used for this one specific product widget that the product teams have been very, very clear about what it's called. But then you might end up naming it something more generic. Yeah, that happens uh, a fair amount. And actually, that I feel that's where programming becomes more of an art rather than a science, because, you know, when you create, you know, a generic module that's going to be used by SnapFu widget, right? Um, you're effectively creating an abstraction layer, you know, on top of it, which is good. But then you can take it too far and create too many abstraction layers. And then your code is very hard to follow. And it's like, well, this can be used for SnapFu widget, but it can also be used for something totally unrelated, like, you know, FUBAR or whatever, you know. And it's like, well, great. Why did we do that? You know, so and that that's where the, you know, the kind of art, you know, and the pragmatism comes behind of being able to say, like, look, I'm making this thing. That, that can be used in multiple places, and it maybe should be. Uh, maybe it's like a date picker or a calendar picker. But when you're going into, like, say, integrations, hey, maybe this can be used between, like, QuickBooks, Intech, Sage, whatnot. But maybe this is very specific to QuickBooks. So let's keep it to QuickBooks. And that's where, that's where the pragmatism comes in, right? Do you find yourself more often on Team Rewrite or Team Refactor? Uh, team Refactor. Nine times out of ten. <laughs> when do you think it's appropriate to really advocate for a rewrite then? Maybe that 10% of the time. <laughs> okay. Rewrites are really tough because first, it depends on the level of code that was written to achieve what the business wanted at that particular time. And there's a lot of factors that could go into um, making that code that is no longer usable, right? Um, and it's really coming up with the determination is, can we actually fix this code to do what we want it to do? Or is fixing it, because the code is so brittle, that trying to refactor it or take out chunks is just going to break the whole entire infrastructure, like a house of cards. If that's going to happen, then you really do need to go into the rewrite you know, scenario. Most of the time I found the initial... When people first look at the problem, that's the initial gut reaction. It's like, well, let's just rewrite it, right? Because you don't have full scope of what the code's doing. Um, but once you kind of get into it and, you know, taking a step back, taking some time, really analyzing it, hopefully looking at whatever tests are there, you might see, oh, we can actually break this apart into chunks. And, you know, then we can refactor as needed. But refactoring oftentimes leads to smaller risk footprints, meaning that you can you know, refactor bits and pieces as you go along uh, without breaking the whole entire product, um, which makes it more digestible for the business. Um, 
as well as more digestible for testing and like programmer sanity. Because rewrites often tend, in my experience, to be like, okay, we're going to re- rewrite this whole thing. It'll take a year. And that year is obviously not true. It's probably going to be actually be two years when you actually you go through it. But there's that light at the tunnel is so far away, you know. Whereas with a refactor, it's like, okay, we'll spend a month doing this little part, you know. Once we're doing that little part, that's great. Now we're, you know, we're only 5% of the way there. We have 95%, but at least we've made progress. And you can kind of start tracking that progress as you go along. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. Yeah. What do you th- do? You think that it's something that engineers, you know, they have to kind of experience the pain of a rewrite to kind of become fans of refactoring and that kind of, or see the the benefits of like, okay, well, now I understand why this is because there's, a, I feel like there's this interesting thing in the in in the the career arc for a lot of at least in my experience with people that I've worked with over the years or have talked with, uh, there's kind of like this point in their career where they start to feel pretty confident and then they're like looking back and they're able to be like, oh, if we could just use this other technology that I have, you know, that I'm really interested in using it, things will be so much better. Grass is going to be greener. We won't have all these problems, all this baggage that this platform has that, that I'm currently dealing with. It's going to be, it's going to be free of all of those. Obviously we, we know that there are likely going to be a completely different list of pain points and things that you have yet to experience until you, you find yourself in that, even if you were successful with the rewrite, but how do you help those who haven't gone through that process kind of learn from your experience or from others' experience when I think we often, as humans, kind of just rely on our own experiences to help inform these types of things. Yeah, whenever a developer comes to me and, you know, wants to do a rewrite for, you know, X, Y, and Z, the first thing I I really ask them is, well, why? You know, what are we gaining from it? You know, because that's going to be time and money that's going to be invested in this. And I want to make sure that the outcome that is achieved is greater than that time and money that is put forth to do it, you know? And I will want a very strong explanation on why to do it, but then it causes the developer to sit down and think, right? So moving languages, right? That's a really bad one for me. (laughs) Um, Or moving frameworks even, because I'm like, well, you know, unless the framework, unless we're writing, we wrote this in Perl, like, uh, you know, what, what was so bad about this language that, you know, this caused it to do it? Now, if it's performance related, you're like, yeah, we, you know, wrote, wrote it in like, the 1.9 series of Ruby. <laughs> and it's, you know, now we need to write it in Go because this is doing stock trading. Okay, that's a good, you know, it's a good use case, right? But I, I would really want a justification of like, why was it so bad in that particular language or that particular infrastructure or framework that doesn't allow us to to move forward? Scale, if, it, if it is scalability, that's a very good argument that I can get behind. If it's code readability or... Just, uh, uh, you know, no documentation. No one understands what it's doing. It's a black box. Okay, that is a very 
good argument that maybe we can get behind. But I really want to force the developer to kind of say, why are we going to be doing this? You know, um, what is the end result and what do we hope to achieve from it before we go, we go and do it, you know? And there are cases like one we just, we, we did was because the old code was so buggy that every patch we did caused another regression within the code. Okay. And that's a good argument for, for doing this because we're just basically playing whack-a-mole within our own code and you know, it's where no one wants to be. So, you know, then you can come into time and cost to be able to do it versus just the endless amount of bugs that are going to be, you know, coming through. But I want the user to understand, uh, the, 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 the programmer to understand this before they just blindly go forward with it. So, Nice. I'm curious if your team brings on junior developers at all. We've brought in some developers that have come from boot camps. We've brought in developers that are right out of college. Has that been something that's, that your team had been doing for a while, or is it something that's kind of more of a something you've been learning how to as a team to navigate and to help streamline the onboarding and the mentorship model that that would require? We had a junior team, I'd say, well, yeah, take that back, a more junior team, but our, our team was actually more offshore than anything else. Uh, when I first started, um, we had some junior members. Um, I'm a big fan of doing internship programs, bringing on uh, junior developers, as long as they have the support structure uh, to be able to um, lean on some of the more senior, mid-level and more senior developers um, so they don't get lost or don't learn bad practices or don't, you know, so that we make it fulfilling for them, as well as us being able to mentor those developers to become better developers that will then be advantageous for our company. And that, that support structure needs to be there for it to be very effective, I feel. When they bring, when you bring in interns and you're placed into the pods, uh, just among them, are they, are they participating pretty quickly? Like what, what's the type, type, typical ramp up time that you find that they're needing when they're coming out of a boot camp or something like that? Yeah, so they get put into a particular squad, and that is what they, they start producing after, you know, their first two weeks. Yeah, so, I mean, we we will start assigning them stories, you know, within the first two weeks. We don't expect them to obviously do very much, and depending on their area of focus, especially given um, the complexity of some of our architecture. We, you know, we would, in an ideal world, they'd be committing, you know, same day as when they started. But we expect them to be, you know, performant, you know, not at the same throughput as like a senior level developer, but, you know, as a developer. And one thing that we like to do is also to um, provide them like, you know, hey, why don't you start on something small, like, a, you know, a bug fix or some technical debt because we have it documented. So, you know, pick one of these items and, you know, take a look at it and see what you think about it. And, you know, not one of the more high level overarching, hey, we need to replace DynamoDB, but like hey, maybe, you know, Let's just, you know, increase that build time by a minute, you know, see what your thoughts are on this and, you know, take a look. So, and then that serves two purposes. One is that they, you know, get adjusted to how to build our software, how to, you know, deploy to dev, QA and whatnot. But it also uh, allows them, obviously, time to grow a little bit, you know, to see our team, work with other team members to to, to start becoming adjusted. So, Have you had any, for lack of a better phrase, pushback from senior members when they're feeling kind of at capacity, like, why are we bringing in interns or junior people? Um, I don't have enough time to finish the tasks that I already have, let alone I need to now be re partially responsible for the success of some, you know, up and coming software engineer. How do you 
have you had that kind of experience at all? Like at least have those types of conversations at all? Yes, I have. You know, and it's definitely, I wouldn't have said been an issue, but it's definitely come up on several occasions where, you know, I have my own sprint goals, you know, we, we have our own performance and I'm getting asked a lot of questions, you know, and especially when, unfortunately, there are multiple junior members that are asking one person questions. So it's very easy. I have a very good response for it, I feel. One is like, look, this junior member of your team, the reason why you're mentoring them is because some of the work that you've been doing that personally I consider, you know, is, you know, taking time away from, from your work, you know, that you might be having to do for support of this. Well, they're going to do it. So make sure that they're trained such that they can take that off of your plate. And the sooner that happens, the easier it's going to be for you, you know, and it's going to ramp up. Like say you're doing an integration, right? Well, if you can train them up to do an integration, then you don't have to do the integration. You know, you just have to kind of oversee it, you know, or if you still want to, that's fine, but we still have more integrations to do. So the more that they can provide, the more they can help. But if you're also getting, you know, bombarded, tell them to come to me. I'm more than open to take questions. um, And I will redirect that person to somebody else who I feel would be appropriate for doing it. Um, but also, you know, they might be junior members. So something that might take that person, you know, 30 minutes might take the junior member four hours, right? Especially as they ramp up. I'm okay with that four hours. Like spend, a four, you know, I might tell them, spend the four hours and go through it. Time boxing at that. Don't take days. But once you get through that, I expect as you grow as a developer, you won't take four hours next time. You'll take two hours, and then, you know, down to that 30 minute mark. Um, so, that it's it's always this interesting thing where i think that we often forget as you know software engineers what it was like for ourselves to learn you know we were just as junior as them as at some point we may or may not have very clear memory of what that experience was really like whether or not we did have mentors or not how how much those people helped us begrudgingly or not it's always this interesting thing where i'm just like one of the reasons I'm a big advocate for having interns, interns and, and junior developers come into teams is because just to keep our team, you know, one, we have to recruit people, right? Uh, that's just an important part of it. And not, not every, we can't just always go off and find new senior level people. But the other part of it is like we, we kind of owe it to the next generation of people to like help pass on the baton a little bit and share the things that we're learning. I've seen some senior level engineers struggle a little bit because they become very helpful for a while, but then they kind of get to this point where like, oh, maybe the junior developers or interns start to go to them more, most often because they are the ones that are most receptive to help them. And they're like, ah. And so then they start worrying, like, maybe I was a little too accommodating and now they're always going to come to me because they're not going to other people because someone else that might have put up a little bit of a, I'm not available right now. So then they don't go back and ask that person again. And so I think that's, it's an interesting dynamic for the team to try to figure out. And I think it's great that you were like, well, send them my way and then you can help reroute them or something. I think that could be quite helpful. Anyways, I just wanted to kind of talk out loud about that a little bit because I know there's people listening that are probably on either side of that being like, I don't want to bother people as a junior person. Like, I don't want to distract them. I don't want to, you know, it's hard enough to come and ask you for help because I'm a little nervous. Like, I'm intimidated in some ways by like your knowledge or, or the fact that I know that you're busy. You've got things going on and I appreciate your time, but I need help. I don't want to just, or, or are you expecting me to just already know how to do this? And I don't yet. Yeah. And I, I emphasize, you know, with my team, it's like, look, if you're spending more than an hour on a problem, please come talk to me. You know, I might not have an answer, 
but I'm going to try to help you out, you know, even if I am busy, um, you know, because we're, you know, remote, you know, because of COVID. So it's like, ping me on Slack. I'll see your message. I might, I'll probably respond just like, Hey, I'll get to this. And I will, you know, and then try to actually act as a, you know, to unblock somebody or to go to, you know, your manager and be like, Hey, can you help him with this? <laughs> you know, cause I know how busy they are. So, but yeah, uh, it's funny you mentioned about like remembering, you know, back in the day when we were first starting out and I remember my first, you know, mentor, I won't call him a mentor because we're still really good friends and I want him to get a big head, but, uh, you know, uh, you know, some of the things that he taught me, especially as I was, you know, starting to develop and totally developing the absolute wrong way, you know, and how he kind of guided me towards like, Hey, maybe you should think about this. Maybe you should think about this. And here's when you should ask questions, you know, here's what you need to think about as you're becoming a better developer. It really touched me, you know, and I still keep in good touch with him today. Now he asked me for questions, so I'm very happy about that. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah, one of my uh, my mentors, I ended up after leaving that company and a couple of years later starting Planet Argon, I ended up, was able to recruit him and now he's my business partner. So uh, now we ask each other completely different types of questions and I think we both probably are mentors to each other now. But it's, it's, it's I often forget of just like how important he was at that era of my career as well. And so thanks, Gary. All right. With that, a couple of quick last questions for you, Andrew. So is there a non-software, non-technical book that you find yourself most often recommending to people? <laughs> Interesting. Yes. Yes and no. I read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy. So I actually do get a fair amount of questions of, you know, hey, what's a good book to read, you know, and so especially in that genre. Um, and uh, one I love, it's a, it's a very morbid book, but it's a great author. It's one called Heroes Die. It's very much an anti-hero, you know, sci-fi fantasy mix um, that I just really enjoy um, for, for some reason. Um, kind of goes along the story of a guy who comes from, it's a dystopian world. He comes from a very low class, but he's an actor. And he's, he's a great actor, but he's always considered low class on Earth. And how he just kind of like forges his own path and, you know, sometimes through brutal means, but uh, <laughs> I just really, really, really liked it. Excellent. I'll, I'll include a link to that for everybody in the show notes. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts and rum, ruminations about software engineering and development online? So I don't have a blog, really. I'm not very active on Twitter. However, BuildOps will be starting a blog relatively soon. And so once we do, um, I can share that link and we can, you know, we can start seeing some postings there. Well, excellent. Well, maybe one of your first blog posts could be a link to your your, your episode on Maintainable. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Andrew. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Maintainable.